Hi everyone, and for today's case, we're going to be covering Lizzie Borden. I'd like to firstly start out with the disclaimer that whenever I'm talking about cases like this, I mean absolutely no disrespect to the people, victims, and families involved. I just do my research online and I present you with the information and sometimes include my banter and feedback on the topics. If you're uncomfortable with anything that we'll be covering in today's discussion, please just take care of yourself and don't continue with this episode. I'll have no hard feelings to you. I just want to make sure you're doing what's right for you and your mental state. Today's case will be covering some brutal attack methods, lying, manipulation, as well as murder. So jumping right into this, this case was suggested by a friend of mine, Kiana Schofield. Lizzie Andrew Borden. She was an American woman who was tried and acquitted of a murder that happened on August 4th, 1892. They were the axe murders of her father and her stepmother in Fall River, Massachusetts. Nobody else was ever charged with the murders or in this case, and despite the ostracism from other residents of the town, Borden actually spent the remainder of her life in Fall River with her sister. She eventually ended up dying of pneumonia at age 66, and just days before the death of her older sister, Emma. To this day, many believe that she not only got away with these murders, but that she did it because of her gender and the town's naive nature to go along with the original thought process that this murder and murders must have happened to be by a tall, stronger man, just due to the brutality of it all. And that Lizzie and her sister were just overly emotional victims to this crime and loss of their family. The Borden murders and trials received widespread publicity throughout the United States, along with Borden herself. And they still remain a topic in American popular culture to this very present day. They've been depicted in numerous films, theatrical productions, literary works, different TV shows, folk rhymes, and are still really known in the Fall River area. You can actually take tours of their house. It is a very educational experience to go to the Borden family house. So the early life, the Borden house at 92 2nd Street in Fall River, Massachusetts is pretty infamous now in that area. Lizzie Borden was born July 19th in 1860 to Sarah Anthony Borden and Andrew Jackson Borden, her father, who was English and Welsh in descent. They grew up in a very modest surrounding and struggled financially when he was a young man but despite being the descendant of a wealthy, influential local resident. Andrew did eventually prosper in the manufacturing industry and sale of furniture and caskets, and was successfully a property developer later on. He was a director of several textile mills and owned a considerable amount of commercial property. He was also president of the Union Savings Bank and the director of the Dufresne Savings Deposit and Trust Company. At his death, his estate was valued at 300000 Despite his wealth, Andrew was known for his frugality. For instance, the Borden home was a home that was still lacking indoor plumbing, although at the time it was a pretty common accommodation for the wealthier people to have. It was an affluent area, but the wealthiest residents of Fall River, including Andrew's cousins, generally lived in a more fashionable state and neighborhood, the Hill 
which is farther up from the industrial area of the city. Borden and her oldest sister, Emma Lenora Borden, had relatively religious upbringings and attended a central congregational church. As young women, Lizzie was really involved in church activities, including teaching in Sunday school, um, especially to children of the town and recent immigrants to the United States that lived in that area. She was involved in religious organizations such as the Christian Endeavor Society, and in that she served as a secretary treasurer, and the contemporary social movements such as a Women's Christian Temperance Unit Union. She was also a member of the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission. Three years after the death of Lizzie's mother, Sarah, Andrew married Abby Dufresne Gray. Lizzie stated that she called her stepmother Mrs. Borden and demurred whether they had a cordial relationship. She believed that Abby had only married her father for his wealth. Bridget Sullivan, who they called Maggie, the Borden's 25-year-old live-in maid, had immigrated to the United States from Ireland. She had testified that Lizzie and Emma rarely ate meals with their parents. In May of 1892, Andrew killed multiple pigeons in the barn with a hatchet and believed that they were attracting a local children's like group to hunt them. Lizzie had recently built a roost for the pigeons, and it had been commonly recounted by neighborhood people that she was extremely upset over him killing them. Although, that was kind of disputed depending on who you were asking in town. A family argument in July of 1892 prompted both the sisters to take an extended vacation to New Bedford. After returning to Fall River a week before the murders, Lizzie chose to stay in a local rooming house for four days before eventually returning to the family residence. Tension had been growing within the Borden family for months before the murders actually happened, as you can kind of guess with them not even really wanting to live at the house anymore. But this was especially over Andrew's gift of real estate to various branches of Abby's family. He hadn't gifted Lizzie or her sister anything, but Abby's family was getting basically all of his attention. After their stepmother's sister received a house, the sisters demanded that they each received a rental property, the home that they had at least lived in until their mother had died, which they purchased from their father for a dollar a few weeks before the murder. They sold the property back to their father for $5,000, equivalent to $151,000 in the United States in 2021 the night before the murders. John Vinicum Morris, the brother of Lizzie and Emma's deceased mother, visited and was invited to stay for a few days to discuss business matters with his brother-in-law, Andrew. Some writers and people who have studied this case have speculated that their conversation, particularly about the property transfer, might have aggravated already tense situations in the family, and for several days before the murders, the entire household had also been violently ill. A family friend later speculated that when mutton left on the stove for a meal was eaten after several days, that caused the severe illness. But Abby had feared it was actually poison, given that Andrew had not been seen as like a popular man at the time. He had he had enemies. So on August 4, 1892, the murders occurred. The body of Abby Borden and the body of Andrew Borden were found in the home.
John Morris arrived in the evening of August 3rd and had slept in the guest room that night. After breakfast that next morning, in which Andrew, Abby, Lizzie, and John, and the Bordens made Bridget, Maggie, Sullivan, were present, Andrew and John went to the sitting room where they chatted for nearly an hour. Morse left around 8.48 a.m. to buy a pair of oxen and visit his niece in Fall River. He planned on returning to the Borden home for lunch around noon. Andrew left for his morning walk sometime after 9 a.m. Although the cleaning of the guest room was one of Emma and Lizzie's regular chores, Abby went upstairs sometime between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. to make the bed. According to the forensic investigation that happened at the time, Abby was facing her killer at the time of her attack. She was first struck on the side of the head with a hatchet, which cut her just above her ear, causing her to turn and fall face down onto the floor. That created a contusion on her nose and forehead. Her killer then struck her multiple times, delivering 17 more direct hits to the back of her head, inevitably killing her. When Andrew returned around 10.30 a.m. from his walk, his key failed to open the door, so he knocked. Sullivan went to unlock the door. Finding it jammed, she uttered a curse. She would later testify that she heard Lizzie laughing, and immediately after this, she did not see Lizzie, but stated that the laughter was coming from the top of the stairwell. This was considered significant as Abby was already dead by this time, and her body would have been visible to anyone on the home's second floor. Lizzie later denied being upstairs at all and testified that her father had asked her where Abby was, to which she replied that a messenger had delivered Abby a summons to visit a sick friend. Sullivan stated that she had then removed Andrew's boots and helped him into his slippers before he ended up laying down on the sofa downstairs to take a nap. A detail that was definitely contradicted by the crime scene photos because Andrew was still wearing his boots. Sullivan then informed Lizzie of a department store sale. Lizzie said Sullivan was welcome to come along with her, but Sullivan kind of felt unwell and decided that, you know, it was time to take a nap in her bedroom instead. She then testified that she was on the third floor room resting from cleaning windows when just before 11.10 a.m. she heard Lizzie call from downstairs, Maggie, come quick, father's dead. Somebody came in and must have killed him. Andrew was slumped on the couch where he said he would be napping, downstairs in the sitting room. He was struck ten or eleven times with a hatchet-like weapon. One of his eyes had been split cleanly in two, suggesting that he had been asleep when he was attacked. He was still bleeding, and wounds suggested a very recent attack. Dr. Bowen, the family's physician, arrived at the home across the street and pronounced both the victims dead. Detectives estimated that Andrew's death had only occurred at 11 a.m., the investigation then started. Lizzie Borden's initial answers to the police officer's questions were at times kind of strange and contradictory. Initially, she reported hearing a groan or a scraping noise or a distress call before entering the house. Two hours later, she had told police that she had heard absolutely nothing and entered the house not realizing that anything was wrong. And when she asked where her stepmother was, she recounted Abby receiving a note asking her to visit a sick friend. She also stated that she thought Abby had returned and asked if someone could go upstairs to look for her. Sullivan and a neighbor, Miss Churchill, were halfway up the stairs, their eyes level with the floor, when they looked into the guest room and saw Abby lying face down on the floor. 
Most of the officers who interviewed Borden reported that they just disliked her attitude in general, and some said she was just too calm, collected, and poised for somebody who just basically lost their mother, their stepmother, and their father. And despite her attitude and changing alibis, nobody bothered to check her, her hands, or anything on her for bloodstains. Police did search her room, but it was kind of a, like, secondary thought to them for that inspection. And at the trial, they admitted to not doing a proper search of her because Miss Borden was not feeling well at the time. They were subsequently extremely criticized for that and their lack of diligence, and I don't blame the town or the court for that. They really should have done a better job at trying to collect evidence. In the basement of the family house, police found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head that had a broken handle attached to it. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon, as the break in the handle appeared to be fresh, and the ash and dust on the head, unlike that of the other bladed tools, appeared to be deliberately applied to make it look like it had been in the basement for quite some time. However, none of these tools were ever removed from the house, and because of the mysterious illness that struck the house before the murders, the family's milk and Andrew and Abby's stomach was removed during autopsies and tested for poison, but no poison was found. Residents suspected Lizzie of purchasing uh, hydro hydrocyanic acid in a diluted form from the local drugstore. Her defense was that she inquired about the acid in order to clean her furs, despite a local medical examiner's testimony saying that it did not have any antiseptic properties. Lizzie and Emma's friend, Alice Russell, decided to stay with them the nights following the murders, while Morris spent the night in the attic guest room. There are contrary accounts that later state he actually slept at the murder site guest room, but there's no real way of knowing unless we were there and we weren't. Police were stationed around the house on the night of August 4th, during which an officer said he had seen Borden enter a cellar with Russell carrying a kerosene lamp and a slop pail. He stated he saw both women exit the cellar, after which Borden returned alone later that night. Although he was unable to see what she was doing, he stated that it appeared she was bent over a sink. On August 5th, Morse left the house and it was mobbed by hundreds of people. Basically, police had to escort that person, Morris, back to his own house. On August 6th, the police conducted a more thorough search of the house in general, inspecting the sisters' clothing and confiscating the broken-handled hatchet head. That evening, a police officer and the mayor visited the Bordens, and Lizzie was informed that she was a suspect in the murders officially. The next morning, Russell entered the kitchen to find the Bordens tearing up a dress. She explained that she was planning to put it in the fire because it was covered in paint and no longer suited her needs. It was never determined whether it was the dress she had been wearing on the day of the murders or not, however. A little-known fact about Lizzie's conflicting statements is that a local physician had prescribed her a very large amount of morphine to help with her supposed hysteria after the butchering of her father and stepmother. So there's a lot of experts that believe that people with that much morphine in them might not be able to keep their story straight. It might have easily caused her to have a skewed viewpoint on the events 
and between the interviews, along with just feeling stressed and tired from being sick previously and being pressured from police on staff that made it pretty clear they didn't like her or her attitude. The inquest began and Borden appeared for the hearing on August 8th. Her request to have a family attorney present was refused under a state statute providing that the inquest must be held in private. She had been prescribed regular doses of morphine at that point to calm her nerves, and again, it is completely possible that her testimony was affected by this. Her behavior was definitely erratic, and she often refused to answer a question even if the answer would have been beneficial to her. She often contradicted herself and provided alternating accounts of the morning in question, such as saying she was in the kitchen reading or that, you know, her father arrived home while she was reading, and then saying that she was in the dining room doing ironing instead. Then she said that she was downstairs, and she had also removed her father's boots and put slippers on him, while again the police photographs clearly show that he was still in his boots. The district attorney was very aggressive and confrontational with her. On August 11, Borden was served with a warrant and arrest and then was jailed. The inquest testimony on the basis for modern debate regarding her guilt and innocence was later ruled inadmissible at her trial in June of 1893. There was a ton of newspaper articles noted that Borden possessed a stolid demeanor and bit her lips, flushed, and was kind of bent towards the attorney. It was also reported that the testimonies provided in the inquest has caused a change of opinion among her friends who had therefore strongly maintained her innocence. The inquest received significant press attention nationwide, including the extensive three-page write-up in the Boston Globe at the time. A grand jury began the hearing and evidence on November 7th, and Borden was indict indicted December 2nd of that year. Borden's trial took place in New Bedford, starting on June 5th, 1893. Prosecuting attorneys Hoasa M. Knowlton and the future United States Supreme Court Justice William H. Moody were there, and defending was Andrew V. Jennings and Melvin O. Adams, former Massachusetts Governor George D. Robinson was also there. Five days before the trial commenced on June 1st, another axe murder had actually occurred in Fall River. This time, the victim was Bertha Manchester, who was found hacked to death in her kitchen. The similarities between Manchester and Borden's murders were striking and was definitely noted by the jurors. However, Jose Cora de Mello, a Portuguese immigrant, was later convicted of Manchester's murder in 1894 and was determined not to have been in the vicinity of Fall Rivers at the time in general when Borden murders happened. A prominent point of discussion in this trial, and the press coverage of it, was the hatchet head found in the basement, which was not convincingly demonstrated by the prosecutors to be a murder weapon that could have been used in this case. Prosecutors argued that the killer had removed the handle because it would have been completely covered in blood. One officer testified that the hatchet handle was found near the hatchet head, but another officer contradicted this. There was no bloody clothing found at the scene. Russell testified that on August 8th of 1892, she had witnessed Borden burning a dress in the kitchen stove, saying it had been ruined when she brushed against the wet paint wall. During the course of the trial, the defense never attempted to challenge that statement. 
The trial jury that acquitted Borden was definitely one that was made up of people trying to do their best. Lizzie Borden's presence at the home was also a point of dispute during the trial. According to the testimony, Sullivan entered the second floor of the home around 10.58 and left Lizzie and her father downstairs. Sullivan is the maid known as Maggie. Lizzie told several people at the time that she went into the barn and was not in the house for 20 minutes or possibly a half hour to an hour. Hyman Lubinsky testified in defense of Lizzie that he saw Lizzie Borden leaving the barn at 11.03, and Charles Gardner confirmed the time. At 11.10, Lizzie called to Sullivan and told her to come downstairs because Andrew had been murdered and ordered her not to enter the room. Instead, Borden sent her to go get a doctor. Both victims' heads had been removed during the autopsy, and the skulls were admitted, at a, the skulls were admitted as evidence. During the trial and presentation on June 5th of 1893, upon seeing them in the courtroom, Lizzie Borden fainted. Evidence was excluded that Borden had sought to purchase pruritic acid, reportedly for cleaning her sealskin coat and furs. Again, the judge ruled that that incident was too remote at the time to have any connection. The presiding associate justice, Justin Dewey, who had been appointed by Robinson when he was governor, delivered a lengthy summary that supported the defense of his charges to the jury before it was sent out for deliberation on June 20th of 1893. After an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury ended up acquitting Borden of the murders. Upon exiting the courthouse, she told reporters that she was the happiest woman in the world, and I quote, the happiest woman in the world. The trial has been compared to the later trials of Bruno Hauptmann, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, and O.J. Simpson as a landmark in publicity and public interest in the history of an American legal proceeding. There's a lot of speculation. Although she was completely acquitted in the trial, Borden remained the prime suspect in her father and stepmother's murder. A writer, Victoria Lincoln, proposed in 1967 that Borden might have committed the murders while in like a fatigue or delirious state from being sick. Another prominent suggestion was that she was physically and sexually abused by her father and that eventually drove her to kill him, although there was no real evidence to support that. However, that kind of topic wasn't something that would have been openly discussed at the time anyways, and the methods for collecting physical evidence wouldn't have been sufficient slash were extremely different than what we do now for collecting physical evidence. Um, it was 1892. So the belief was basically made up. I don't want to say that it wasn't true, but again, there wasn't a lot of proof or any type of proof that could have been collected at the time. At the time of the murders, a lot of local papers swarmed and created their own essays and basically tried to figure out their own speculations on what could have happened. There's a mystery author uh, Evan Hunter, in his 1984 novel, Lizzie, suggested that Miss Borden committed the murders after being caught in a, like, meddling affair with Maggie. And then, basically, people thought Abby had caught Lizzie and Maggie together and had reacted with such horror and disgust 
that Lizzie had killed Abby with a candlestick, and then when Andrew returned home, she confessed to him but ended up killing him in a rage when he reacted poorly. There was another significant suspect that never got fully investigated. That was John Morris, Lizzie's maternal uncle. He rarely met with the family after his sister died, but he had slept at the house the night before to talk about the finances and the house. Law enforcement had talked to him and provided an absurdly perfect and overly detailed alibi for the death of Abby Burden. There are others that were noted as potential suspects, including Maggie, for possible retaliation after being ordered to clean the windows on such a hot day, which was the day of the murders. It was known to be unusually hot at the time, and she was still recovering from the mystery illness that struck the entire household. A man named William Borden was suspecting Andrew's illegitimate son. He was noted that he could be a possible suspect by a writer, Arnold Brown, who surmised in his book, Lizzie Borden, The Legend, The Truth, and The Final Chapter, that William had tried and failed to extort money from who he claimed to be his father. Later in life, after the trial, the Borden sisters moved into a large and modern house in the Hill neighborhood in Fall River. Around this time, Lizzie began using the name Lisbeth A. Borden at their new house, which Lisbeth dubbed Maplecroft. They had a staff that included live-in maids, housekeepers, a coachman, etc. Because Abby was ruled to have died before Andrew, her estate went first to Andrew and then, at his death, passed to his daughters as a part of the estate. A considerable settlement, however, was paid to settle claims by Abby's family. Despite the acquittal, Borden was ostracized by Fall River Society, basically for the rest of her life. Her name again was brought into the public eye when she was accused of shoplifting in 1897 in Providence, Rhode Island. In 1905, shortly after an argument over a party that Elizabeth had given for an actress, Nance O'Neill, Emma moved out of the house and never saw her sister again. Eventually, Lizzie fell ill. In the last year of her life following the removal of her gallbladder, she had died of pneumonia on June 1st in 1927 in Fall River. The funeral details were never published and very few attended. Nine days later, Emma ended up dying from chronic nephritis at the age of 76 in a nursing home in Newmarket, New Hampshire. Having moved to this location in 1923, both for health reasons and to avoid the renewed attention following the publication of another book about the murders, the sisters, neither of whom had ever married, were buried side by side in a family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. At the time of her death, Borden was worth over $250,000. She owned a house at the corner of French Street and Belmont Street, several office buildings, and several utility buildings, two cars, and a large amount of jewelry. She left $30,000 to the Fall River Animal Rescue League and $500 in a trust for her perpetual care of her father's grave. Her closest friend and cousins each received $6,000 which is a substantial sum for the time during the estate's distribution in 1927, and numerous friends and family members also received between $1,000 and $5,000. There is a folk rhyme that goes along with this case, and it was memorialized by a popular skipping rope rhyme, basically sung to the tune of the popular song, Tarara Boom Die. 
There's Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax, and then when she had saw what she'd done, she gave her father 41. The rhyme was made up by an anonymous writer, and the tune was to sell newspapers. Others attributed it to an ambiguous but anonymous mother goose type of rhyme. In reality, Borden's stepmother suffered 18 or 19 blows, and her father suffered 11. The rhyme was less well known for a second voice, that goes, Andrew Borden now is dead, Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven he will sing, and on the gallows she should swing. That is all for the case on Lizzie Borden. I think that it is really important to note that the jury really did try their best, but the police also didn't do a proper job with investigating immediately when they could have and missed the opportunity to potentially gather a good amount of evidence that they might have or might not have missed during those few first days pending the trial and actual arrest of Lizzie herself. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more like it, make sure that you follow and subscribe. If you'd like to have a specific case covered, I take suggestions in the comments of our YouTube videos on the page Wild Plants X Crime and Mysteries. Thanks for joining us. Make sure you hydrate and stay safe.